welcome to the Blindfold Chess Podcast. Recognized as the first official world champion, Wilhelm Steinitz owned the title from 1886 to 1894. Born in 1836, as the last of 13 sons, he began playing chess at 12 and started studying it in his 20s. At the end of the 1850s, he became very dominant, earning the nickname the Austrian Morphy, after the American Paul Morphy. After a successful match against the Italian master, Serafano Dubois in 1862, Steinitz took up chess professionally. In 1866, Steinitz faced Adolf Anderson, who was then regarded as the strongest active chess player. Steinitz won the match 8-6 by winning the last two games. After this match, Steinitz took home the 100-pound first prize and was regarded as the world's best player, but still informally. After a break, he came back in the 1873 Vienna tournament. Steinitz revealed a new style of play, pivoting from the Romantic era to a more positional style of play. He took home first, including 14 wins in a row. However, this new style of play was deemed as cowardly by his peers. He defended it so much in writing that the ink war started against his debaters, mainly Leopold Hoffer and Johannes Zuckertort. His debaters even persuaded anti-Steinitz articles to be published in America after Steinitz moved there from Europe. For a period of almost 10 years, he did not play in tournaments. He returned to Europe in 1882, taking first in the Vienna tournament. During his absence, one of his debaters, Zuckertort, was winning strong tournaments, prompting some to claim Steinitz shouldn't be regarded as the strongest player. In 1886, Steinitz and Zuckertort agreed to play a match in New York, St. Louis, and New Orleans for the Championship of the World. The victor would be the first to win 10 games. Zuckertort took the 4-1 lead, but Steinitz rallied, winning 12.5-7.5, with 10 wins, 5 draws, and 5 losses, awarding the title of World Champion to Steinitz. In 1887, during the American Chess Congress, Steinitz worked to create a formalized system for world championships, knowing he was too old to hold the title forever. Steinitz defended his title against Isidore Gunsberg, Mikhail Shigorin, and then lost to the 32-year-younger Emanuel Lasker in 1894. That is an age difference record that still stands today. He played a rematch against Lasker in 1896, but lost Two wins, five draws, to ten losses. Shortly after that, Steinitz had a mental breakdown and spent 40 days in a Moscow sanatorium. Not long after that, he suffered a heart attack and passed away, but his mark on the game remains. The positional style of play he pioneered is still played at all levels of chess. In today's game, we are traveling back to 1899, shortly before Wilhelm passed away. Wilhelm Steinitz versus Samuel Tinsley. Now, if we're ready, let's begin. One pawn to e4. Pawn to e6. Two pawn to d4. Pawn to d5. Three pawn to e five. Pawn to c five. 
4. Pawn to c3. Knight c6. Five Knight F three Pawn to F six Statistically this move F six does not occur too often anymore. While it does give black some flexibility in their position, it creates a big hole on what square? That would be the E five square. Six pawn e captures f six. Knight captures f six. Seven bishop d three. Bishop d six. Eight castle kingside. Castle kingside. Nine Rook E one Bishop D seven Ten Knight B to D two Pawn C captures D four Eleven Pawn C captures D four by playing c captures d4, white gave themselves an isolated queen pawn. Why was that preferred to the knight capturing on d4? If you do knight captures on d4, then you give black more control of the center where they can play e5, whereas if you play the pawn captures d4, you keep control over the e5 square, and you can also use it as a point to leverage your own pieces for e5. Pawn to h6. Twelve, knight b3. Knight g4. Thirteen, bishop e3. Queen f6. Fourteen, bishop c2. What is the purpose of the retreating move bishop to c2? One, it provides more coverage to d4 so the queen can protect it, as well as give the queen access to d3, because if you can have the bishop on c2 and the queen on d3, you create a nice battering ram along the b1 to h7 diagonal. Knight b4. Fifteen, bishop b1. Rook a to c8. Sixteen, pawn to a three. Bishop captures h2 check. This could be a good moment to pause and work on calculation. 
Black has played bishop takes h2, check. White has the option to capture it with knight takes h2, or they can neglect to capture it with king f1 or king h1. What would you do and why? Seventeen, knight captures h2. Knight captures e3. Eighteen, pawn f captures e3. Queen f2 check. Nineteen, king h1. Knight c2. After the move knight to c2, the two white rooks are forked. Add that to the white king being under attack. What can you see that gets white out of this? 20. Rook e2. Knight captures e3. Twenty-one, queen d3. Black resigns. It is hard to find a move for black in this position. The queen is under attack on f2, the knight is under attack on e3, there are no checkmating ideas, there are no real threats for black, white has a strong battering ram along the b1 to h7 diagonal, and the light squared bishop for black stuck behind the e6 pawn is out of play. This is such a great game to illustrate how you can react calmly to your opponent's unsound sacrifices. And it's also interesting to see that this game that was played over 120 years ago still have the same relevant principles to today. So that is all that we have for this week. Tune in next time, where we will continue to work on our blindfold skills and look at another game of the Masters.